Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hey, this is Clint from What You Gonna Do, the 24-inch podcast, at WGDPod on Twitter. And you're listening to History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 207th episode of the History Ghost Bomb podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going to Michigan and we're going to be looking at a location that was suggested to us by our listeners, Bridget Schlack and Emily Reidner, and that is the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village. And we're actually going to be joined in just a bit by Bridget Schlack, who had worked out there for many years to share with us the different collections that are out there and, of course, the hauntings that are connected to them. Denise, we had a really cool thing happen with the Spooktacular crew this week. And what was that? We hit number 1,000. That is super, super cool. Yeah, so we remember back to when we hardly had, uh, there were like three of us in there, four of us in there. It was you, me, and Julie Brammer. (laughs) So we have slowly worked our way up to the number 1,000, and we're looking forward to bringing more of you in. Please join us over at Facebook. We share a lot of great stuff in there, and we're more than just a community. We really are a family, and with that being said, we'd like to welcome into the Spooktacular crew a family member of one of our Spooktacular crew, Gavin. Denise, this is Kathy's husband. Hey, Gavin. Welcome. And we've actually met him in person, so that's very cool. We have Carrie with a K and an I. Hey, Carrie with a K and an I. Welcome, Paige. Hello, Paige. And then our thousandth member, Dustin. Hey, Dustin, number 1000. And now, this moment in oddity. This moment in oddity was suggested by Michael Rogers. The largest reptilian predator in the world is the saltwater crocodile. The crocodile can grow up to 20 feet long and weigh 2,000 pounds and eat something as big as a water buffalo, meaning that it can eat a full-grown adult human as well. One of its territories is the mangrove swamps of Ramri Island. This island lies off of the Burma coast and was occupied by the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II. The Allies launched an attack in 1945 to retake the island. The British called on the Japanese to surrender and they refused. They decided to run into the swamp despite the dangers of poisonous animals, lack of drinking water, and tropical diseases. What nobody considered would come to be one of the oddest incidents during any war. Bruce Stanley Wright wrote the book Wildlife Sketches Near and Far, and he described what happened as, quote, That night was the most horrible that any member of the Marine Launch crews ever experienced. The crocodiles, alerted by the din of warfare and the smell of blood, gathered among the mangroves, lying with their eyes above water watchfully alert for their next meal. 
With the ebb of the tide, the crocodiles moved in on the dead, wounded, and uninjured men who had become mired in the mud. End quote. Nearly half of the 1,000 Japanese soldiers that ran into that swamp died. Others were left so badly injured and mauled that they were captured by the British forces. Not many know about the Battle of Ramri Island or the creepiness connected to it. The fact that a bunch of crocodiles forced the Japanese to finally surrender the island certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now this month in history. In the month of June, on the 12th in 1967, the United States Supreme Court unanimously struck down all state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. In 1664, the state of Maryland instituted the first law against marriage between whites and slaves. In 1691, Virginia began exiling white people who married people of color. Pennsylvania would take the first steps towards repealing laws banning interracial marriage in 1780. Many northern states would follow suit before the Civil War as part of an attempt to abolish slavery. Despite these positive movements, there would be three attempts made to amend the Constitution to ban interracial marriage. The Cable Act of 1922 shined a light on marriage between whites and Asians and stripped any American citizen of their citizenship if they married an Asian immigrant. McLaughlin v. Florida was argued in 1964 and the Supreme Court of the United States unanimously ruled that banning interracial sex violated the 14th Amendment. Richard and Mildred Loving took their case to the Supreme Court of the United States on that 12th day in June of 1967, and interracial marriage was finally legal in all states. Henry Ford was more than just an inventor. He was a collector, and by the 1920s, he had amassed one of the largest collections of Americana in the world. He decided to display his collection at a museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and the plan he laid out featured two separate facilities, one indoor and one outdoor. The indoor facility would tell the story of man's innovation, and the outdoor museum would be a village about history. Today, we know this location as the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village. We are joined by our listener, Bridget Schlack, and she suggested to us that we should check out the Henry Ford Museum, which is at Greenfield Village, and then she also volunteered to come on the show with us. So we're very happy to have you with us, Bridget. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're doing great. Well, obviously, since you listen to our podcast and you're visiting places that are reported to be haunted, you must be a little bit interested in the paranormal. Why is that? Well, it's actually from when I worked at Henry Ford. Uh, that was my high school job, ironically. And when I had my first paranormal experience with the Kennedy car, it was like, okay, there is something out there, even though I don't know exactly what it is. Denise, that- you gotta love this. She goes, well, when I had my first paranormal experience with the Kennedy car. I know, it's like <laughs> the Kennedy car, you know, like everybody just has a, a paranormal experience with the Kennedy car or something. Well, at the Henry Ford, you're bound to have something with that or at the Logan County Courthouse, which Lincoln practiced at. So those are our two big hot spots. 
you don't have a paranormal experience at one of those places, then I, I don't know what you're experiencing at Henry Ward anymore. When I had my experience seeing JFK at the Kennedy car, I was kind of like, okay, I need to kind of figure out what's going on out here. So that's what kind of intrigued me more. And after trips to Gettysburg with my dad and kind of exploring the battlefield and feeling more experiences there, I was going, okay, there is definitely other things out there, but I just don't know what. And the sense of history always drew me to the paranormal too, because as you know, you can't have paranormal without history. So that's what drove me, always drew me to it. So. Absolutely. And I have to ask you now, were you skeptical before you started having these experiences at the museum or were you already a believer and this just confirmed it for you? I mean, I had interest as a kid. I read the ghost, you know, like the scary stories to tell in the dark. I read ghost story, you know, the, the books by the Warrens, even though I was skeptical of those. But when I had that apparition of JFK sitting in a car, I was like, uh, yeah, no, this is real. <laughs> the building itself was built in 1929, and the museum opened actually a week before the stock market crashed. That's and some bad timing. It is a bad timing. And so you kind of have to remember is Henry Ford had a huge presence in building this. He designed everything. If you look at the building, it's a replica of Independence Hall. So this he this was his baby. This was his 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 passion. He everything out in the village, ironically, was either like his birthplace is there, his the, the school that he learned. Uh, and Dearborn is there. Menlo Park, Edison's um, laboratory, from he uprooted that from New Jersey. Everything that's in that village is tied to something that he loved or had an interest in or relates to what he embodied of innovation. Same goes within the museum. It started off as his collection of Americana and things that he loved. But then as years gone by, it's more embodied of the sense of innovation that he started with, you know, innovating the assembly line, where he got that idea. A meatpacking plant in Chicago, in Chicago and just evolved with it for assembling cars to what we now know, know today as, as the line, which a lot of people up here work on. <laughs> And then it just keeps evolving. Every Actually, now the, the new mu- name for the museum is the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation. So that just shows how evolved it's become and how deeply it, it's still honoring his sense of pride for, for working hard and for innovating and tinkering and learning. They even house a school in there, uh, a charter school which is more or less gearing kids for for engineering classes and degrees and prepping them for college. So it's a really good, it's a really great great program. I saw a lot of kids come and go out of that program and I was really impressed with what some of these kids are doing. A lot of these kids now got, went on to internships at Ford and after college, they went on to work at Ford. So it's really cool to see. It's really great that the, the, the sense of embodiment for Henry Ford is still living and still in progress. But Yes, the, the building itself is still very much how Henry Ford designed it. It's very old in certain spots. The floor is still the original floor. We have a lot of things that are connected to a lot of the original owners. We have Edison's last breath in the museum. His, His last, last breath. breath? His last breath. It's a test, too, that Henry Ford put under 
um, Edison's mouth as he was dying. And when he took his last breath, he bottled it up and then he put it on display in the museum. And it always freaked me out as a kid. And everybody looks at it and goes, how could that be? Didn't it evaporate? But it's the significance of behind it because Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were very, very close friends. And this was for Henry Ford, a testament to his mentor, to his friend. It's kind of surreal to, to look at it and go, oh, that actually was Thomas Edison's last breath. Oh, my God. So, so that's, that's one of the, creepy, the creepier things in the museum. Where is the museum located? It's in Dearborn, Michigan. It's just right outside of downtown Detroit. This is the birthplace of Henry Ford. It was when Henry Ford was born. It was a farming community. It is now a suburb, and it actually holds the headquarters of Ford Motor Company, and it holds most of the engineering offices. I was actually born in Dearborn myself, so it's a great it's a great city, and I love going down there. It's very vibrant, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's a pretty it's a very pretty community. There's actually still a lot of the Ford homes that Henry Ford built for a lot of the employees. There's it's a designated neighborhood that they were built for a lot of the factory workers too, so that they could be able to go to work a lot easier instead of commuting from downtown every day. And it's a very pretty neighborhood. It's actually one of my favorite neighborhoods in Dearborn. So when he opened up the museum, did it already have the Greenfield Village as a part of that or did that come later? They actually were working on them at the same time. When he designed it, he designed this with a school in mind for the children of Ford. So when this was designed, it was laid out so that the kids can can go back and forth between the museum and the village. So they were both designed at the same time with the same premise of having somewhere for the, the community to come to and learn more about American history and Dearborn history as well, and learn more about American innovation, basically. There's an interesting tidbit about the village. When he brought over the buildings from the village, each building has the original earth oh my gosh. that they, they stood on underneath them. So, How in the world did they move that? I was already thinking just moving the building seems like a very complex operation, but to move the dirt too? They scooped it up and brought it with them. Wow. <laughs> when they moved the house, so it has the original dirt underneath it. That could play, and that will have some uh, effects later on that we'll get into a little bit later, I think. Okay. <laughs> what we love to say, eccentric. So this was kind of one of his his eccentricities that people kind of thought, ah, he's never going to do this. He's never going to be able to pull this off. And well, for this eccentricity, we thank him for it because it is really, it's probably one of Michigan's true, true gems. And I love it. It's one of my favorite places in the world to go visit. And we actually still, to this day, we have memberships to, to go to the museum and the village whenever we want. And just this weekend, we were actually there taking a Model T right around the village. (laughs) That's great. Well, what's so fascinating about this is about a week after you emailed us about this location, our listener, Emily Reidner, did the same thing. And I said, oh, you won't believe it. We just had this suggested to us. So there was a little bit of synchronicity with that. And she went out there and was taking pictures. And I had no idea all the stuff that is out there. And we'll get into talking about all of it. Originally, when Henry Ford opened it up, it was with some of his personal collection. What had he been collecting that he put in there? He had been collecting a lot of violins. 
farm equipment, guns. I want to say there were some cars and there were uh, just things of his own personal collection. He really collected a lot of uh, musical instruments and a lot of them are still on display. And so is all the farm equipment that he started to collect. And he also collected a lot of antique furniture from the turn of the last century. And he also invested in a few of the planes. Like, we have the replica of the Spirit of St. Louis in the museum. Not everything's on display. There's warehouses upon warehouses of, of things. I mean, I couldn't tell you what I saw when I one day when I was volunteering off-site. And I found, like, maybe three other warehouses of cars and that wasn't even all of them so there there's even more out of state just because we ran out of room to display them but it's what pete what he's a lot of it is what he's collected through his lifetime and some of it might be going back on display at the henry ford estate with all of those things do they change out the displays from time to time or does it stay pretty much the same and they just have the other things in other places do but for the most part it stays the same because i've heard people come when i worked in the museum come back and i've had adults say oh i saw this 40 years ago or i remember when they put that car in here 25 years ago a lot of it still stays the same but they did update some new things we used when i worked there we used to have an innovation station which was just a hands-on station for kids and adults to get in and you know we did shows daily and then a couple of years after that I left, they took that out and they put in some new, a new airplane exhibit and they put and they brought in some new planes and then updated the planes that we did have and some new displays. So they try to change things around a little bit, but they like to keep some things the same because they know the memories it brings back for people. Because we have families that come back year after year after year expecting to see those things and show it to their kids and say, I remember this when I was your age. Now, let's get into all of the different pieces that are in this museum. When you're first talking sure. about, well, there's some instruments and some cars. That all sounds very cool. But then you get uh -huh. into, obviously, you've mentioned the Kennedy car. And, of course, we're talking about the vehicle that he was assassinated in. Yes. And there's pieces from our other president, Abraham Lincoln, who was assassinated. Yes. So it seems like yes. we're going on a theme here with the assassinations. <laughs> so go ahead and, and let us know what kinds of great stuff is in this museum. Okay, well, I'm going to start with the presidential cars. There's just more than just JFK's car in there. There's a row of presidential vehicles, starting with uh, Teddy Roosevelt's carriage from 1901. Cool. And Yeah, it is very cool. Then you have Franklin Roosevelt's uh, Sunshine Special, which is his Lincoln. And that's my favorite car, actually. It's, it's a beautiful car. And then you can see how it was modified to bring in his wheelchair and how he can get in and out. So it's really cool to see that. And then you have Eisenhower's car, which is also a Lincoln. And then you have Kennedy's limousine. That's a Lincoln. And then you have, I want to say it was... Yeah, this one was Ronald Reagan's car, and that and that is also Lincoln. Notice how I said they're all Lincoln. They are all leased from the Ford Motor Company, <laughs> and the president now uses Cadillacs, and they're leased from General Motors. These were all leased from Ford Motor Company. At the end of the time of their lease, they were all brought back to Dearborn 
And that's when Ford Motor Company decided, okay, we're going to put them on display in the museum so that way people can enjoy them. Now, the only car that is besides it having a bad history, it doesn't look like the original car that it was, is JFK's car. There was a lot of modifications done with that, and I can get into that later if you wanted to know more about the haunting. When we get into the haunting of the car, I can tell that story later Okay. if you prefer that. That's probably my favorite part is looking at all the presidential um, cars. And then, of course, like I said, we have all the planes. We have the replica of the Spirit of St. Louis that was used in the movie with Jimmy Stewart. Oh, very cool. Yeah, because the original one is actually in the Smithsonian. And then we also have the one that was sponsored by Ford Motor Company to go to the Antarctic. And that one is really cool to see because you can see how it's designed to land on the ice and the snow. And it's really cool to look at. I love that one. It's called the Josephine Bird Ford Plane because she sponsored the flight. And she was the wife of Edsel Ford. Okay. Henry Ford's son. So she was a she she sponsored the play, and then there's the one I really love the most too is there's a Detroit news plane from I want to say the 1930s, and that's how they flew around the area to drop off newspapers to the different suburbs. So I love I like looking at that one. That one's really cool. And here's another thing that you ladies might find interested. There is an antique curse Ooh. in the museum. Oh, very yes. cool. It's kind of hidden away. You got to go all the way to the back to find it, but it's there and it's got a it's got a coffin in it too. So Hopefully the coffin's okay. empty. I would presume so. <laughs> presume so you don't know for sure. <laughs> I I would hope so. I don't want to find out that there's a body in it. <laughs> but there's also a lot of cool things in there. There's also cars upon cars upon cars. There's the original Daimler from the 1880s. And there's Henry Ford's quadricycle, the first car that he ever built. And then there's also the 15th million Ford to come off the assembly line, which was the Model T. And I believe that came off in 1927. Wow. Yeah, 15 million Ford. That's how fast he was producing them. And then there is also, I think this, but don't tell anybody, I think this is a fake, is a letter from Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame <laughs> telling Henry Ford how much she loved his cars because he had the V8 engine and they were easier to steal. So... <laughs> Yeah, I have a feeling that Clyde would not have been writing Mr. Ford to tell him, hey, thanks for making your car so easy to steal. I think he was a little busy. Yeah. Oh, so. he was still in cars. But it's on display. Just... It's, it's on display in the museum next to some of the souped up cars that we've got. And here's another tidbit. Every car in the museum runs. We all wow. have keys. Yes, they all have keys. And they are all really checked up on. The, some of them have oil still leaking out of them, <laughs> but they all can run. That's one of the museum's mantras is we like to keep everything running. We don't like to not say something is, bro- is broken or unable to work when we can fix it, when we have the, the ability and the manpower to fix it. So that is why if you walk around the museum, you'll see a car occasionally leaking oil um, you know, like with oil drips and there's an oil pan to catch it. And I know I was just looking at some pictures. I just did a a Google search and I noticed that they also have the very first Ford Mustang there at the museum, correct? 
Yeah, Mustang number one, one of my favorite cars in the museum. Uh, that was that. That actually has a funny story to it. It was in a, a showroom. I want to say down in Texas or Florida. I know it was down down by near closer to you guys actually. It got sold. It wasn't supposed to be sold. It was just there for display. But an airplane pilot bought it, had it, and it moved around for a few years until Ford finally located it because they wanted to bring it back for the 25th anniversary, and they donated it back to the museum. So that's where it is. And it's cereals number one. So, and that's where it's been ever since. And we're happy to have it back. <laughs> and now there's a bus there that might have a pretty cool history as well. Do you know which the one Rosa I'm talking Parks about? Bus. Yep. Yes. The Rosa Parks bus. That actually has a little bit of a sad history to it. They were trying to locate it, and they finally found it in a gentleman's backyard in, in Mississippi, and it was completely ruined oh. uh, to the point where they didn't know if they were going to be able to save it. And I and I was there the day that they brought it in, actually, before they restored it. The floorboards were rotted out. It had birds living in it. And the, the seats were all gone for the most part. And it was just rusted out. And I was so sad to see it that way. Such a big piece of our American history just sitting in somebody's backyard. Like, it was just nothing. They, When they finally restored it, it was beautiful. It looked like it was brand new. It just, like, it just rolled off a GM line. Because, ironically, it is a GM bus. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, they did a beautiful job restoring it. And you can actually sit in the bus now. So, oh, cool. it was, yeah, and that's that's why I love seeing the picture of President Obama sitting in the bus, sitting where she sat, and they, they tell you where she sat, and it, it's such an iconic thing to sit there and just kind of go, wow, this, I'm sitting where history happened, and this is really cool. I always feel kind of like that sense of rush coming over me when that happens, so... The thing that's a bummer about the bus is because nobody really thought about, you know, there's some huge historical value here. We mm -hmm. actually lost the seat that she sat in. It would be so cool if you could literally sit in that seat that she had been in. Yeah, yeah, that's the sad thing. It's not the actual seat, but you just to sit in the area where she, it sure. was is still cool. Yeah, no, and that and that's what's sad to me is that they couldn't save that. That it was just like it was just so it's such a rotted out thing that I didn't. I when I first saw it, I'm like, are they going to be able to save this bus? Are they going to be able to do anything with this? What are they going to do? And our team surprised the hell out of me when that came back. And I love seeing the little kids come up and they're they're like, this is the bus. <laughs> that's cool. So it's really cute to see that. Sure, it brings and, history to life for them, if you can actually see yeah, it, not it, just read it. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's why I'm glad that we're a lot of the, that's why I tell a lot of the kids when they go to the museum that they're spoiled, because not a lot of kids get to come here on field trips for school like that. From what little I know about it, it doesn't seem like it's a place you could just go through and see everything in one day. It's, it's huge. So. Oh, no. No, 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 no. We actually, when I worked there, I would encourage people to do the museum in, in a day, maybe a day and a half, and then come back and do the village. And when you hear from the presenters, both in the museum and in the village, you'll learn a lot from them too. Our presenter, our, the presenters are a wealth of knowledge. We actually go through vigorous training where we have to memorize and read and learn everything about Henry Ford and his, his ideals and what each building meant to him and why they're there and why did he have certain these collections and what they meant to him as well. 
So we know we've got all these presidential cars, including the one that Kennedy was assassinated in. We've got Rosa Parks bus. We've got a little sealed tube of Thomas Edison's last breath. What else do we got here? <laughs> Knowing that your love of camping, we've got the earliest form of glamping. We have, we have Henry Ford's camper in the museum. Oh, that's cool. And yes, it's very cool and very detailed. He had brought China on his camping and it's displayed. It's, it looks Don't like give Denise top. any ideas. Don't give her ideas. <laughs> <laughs> he he used to bring his butler with him when he went camping. This was no this was no uh we're we're gonna pop up the camper and sit around the fire camp. This was full on close to Downton Abbey style of, of camping. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, I do want this, a butler I mean, when we go camping, by the way. No. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Diane. I didn't mean to give Denise idea. <laughs> But it's an interesting piece, and he actually had a dining, like kind of like it looks like a dining room table set up, and it's all set up with the china that he brought, and that's where they would sit around and tell their they sing their their campfire songs and and just hang out and have a good time. But of course, it's all with the comforts of being the upper class of the 1910s and the 1920s. <laughs> so I, I kind of laugh at it every time I see it. I'm like, oh. Well, so that's early glamping. Okay, I, I can kind of handle that. I'm not a camper myself, but I could do that. <laughs> now, was this the one that's called his, like, 1937 house car? Is that the... Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, I had, to, is... I had to Google it so I could see an image of it. it it's very yes, interesting. It is. Almost like a full house. <laughs> and the, the other uh, interesting thing that we have in the museum is called the Dynaxian House. I don't know if these guys saw pictures of that. It's, it's a house... It's a circular house made out of aluminum. Oh, I was going to ask, is that copper? Because I couldn't tell. That's no, it's wow. aluminum. It's the only one in the world. It's a, it was the early prefab homes, if you don't count the Sears Robux homes out of the catalog. This was made with the leftover aluminum from the airplanes from during the war. And this was kind of be like a precursor to Levittown. But it didn't take off. Uh, Buck Mr. Fuller designed this house. He designed it for, and he was going to have like whole neighborhoods of this, and only one family bought it, and it was a family in Kansas. This couple actually lived in it for a few years, and then they started having more children, and then on that property, they built an actual house, and then they left it for their kids to use as a playhouse. About, if I want to say, about 15 years ago, they the museum found it and acquired it, and you know, the family donated it rather, and they restored it to its original style. Where you can walk into the house is not the original part, was not the original flooring, where it's blocked off mostly like the living room and the dining area and what would be the bedroom area is the original, what was saved of the original flooring. Because, like I said, it was used as a kid's playhouse for many years, and then it just sat kind of abandoned and they're on their property after the kids grew up. So you had birds and all sorts of critters living in it and tearing up the floors and tearing up the house, but they were able to save it, and they did an awesome job with it. I actually like it. My husband thinks it's a little silly, but I think it's pretty cool because it's the only one in the world. But it didn't take off because people wanted a real home because it's very... A lot of people who like the tiny houses would probably love this house. It's, it's very minimalistic. And that's kind of why people didn't go for it, because they still want their things. They wanted the great conveniences of 
having more space instead of living in cramped houses with their family for so long during the war that when they were all able to buy a home that that's what they wanted. They didn't want something that they had to wait for somebody to come out, put together for them, and then try to like have less things when of course and then after the war we were encouraging people to buy things mm-hmm. so, so I think it looks kind of space agey i it's kind of cool yeah well that's what he was going for and he was actually known for doing that it, a lot of space agey things he i think he did a, a, a bit of the geometric domes in the 60s too i think that's what he was more known for but this was kind of this kind of put him on the map a bit but it was known more as Buck's Mister's Folly because it just didn't take off, and this this poor couple was the only couple that bought that bought it, and they're kind of like going, okay, well, what do we do with it? So after a while, so when and people just thought that it was ridiculous to live in. So uh, we have something that is related to Abraham Lincoln and his assassination. Yeah, and that is the rocking chair. I hate to disappoint you guys, but those stains on that rocking chair is not blood. Ah. They are water stains. They were actually, because it was left in, it kind of got moved around a bit in its history. Um, from Ford's Theater to different places out um, on display. And I think in its travels, when it was on display, it got a bit of water stain so because i i always hear kids go oh that's blood that's blood no then the way that the bullet he was shot fell back to forward the blood to be able to, to splash it because he went forward it it wouldn't have left any blood on on the chair so it's it's water stain that <laughs> but, makes sense because i mean he was shot from the rear and he would have as we know if you if you have a projectile coming from the rear he would have gone forward and there was a lot of commotion right. up in that box too with the fight right. that ensued so yeah so that's that but i have never had an experience at that chair i have never had any experiences but it's still very eye opening and very somber to go over and to look at it. I always feel very hushed when I see it and very somber just knowing what that chair was and what had happened around that chair. So, And the thing is, they used to keep it out in the village. Years and years, I think it was more in the 70s, they used to keep it in the Logan County Courthouse, which is where it was the circuit seat in, in the Logan County where Lincoln used to practice. And because that was one of the last courthouses that Lincoln practiced in, they kept it there as a reminder for him of him in that courthouse. And they were finally convinced to bring it inside because it was deteriorating and they needed to preserve it. And it would be better to keep it in the, in the museum where it was temperature controlled more and it was safer instead of just leaving it out kind of in the open in the village which is only open for certain amounts of months in the year. And there's no guarantee that it would be okay sitting out there like that. So in a section of the museum, which is, which is designated for civil rights, women's rights, and all the, the movements of uh, American history, basically, for, for human, basically for human rights, dating back from the Revolutionary War. That is the last half of the Civil War section is Lincoln's chair, and it's very, very somber. And it actually has the blanket that he had on him that night while he was sitting in that chair. So it kind of came as a two for her, so to speak. And like I said, it's just very 
very sombering to sit there and look at it and go, wow, this, this is the chair. It's interesting that there is nothing haunting in regards to that chair because it seems like his spirit haunts all kinds of places. He certainly seems to get around. And so it seems like that would be kind of one of those poignant things that he would be connected to. But he didn't die in that chair either. So that, you know, no, could be he blind. didn't. No, because he, he died in the boarding house. Mm-hmm. So I would think he would be more in the boarding house connected to that chair. Just because I haven't had an experience doesn't mean I haven't heard anybody else having experiences. <laughs> I've heard security guards say that they've seen the chair kind of rock back and forth when they're doing the late night rounds. But not everybody's going to have the same experience that somebody else is going to have in this museum because it's a plethora of things kind of hanging around, being connected to it. So, Well, you had mentioned the Revolutionary War, and so we have another president here. George Washington's camp bed is there. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It's actually pretty cool. It's a very sparse little bed. And it folds up into a trunk. Really? So it was kind of a portable bed. It was a portable bed, yeah. <laughs> the original up. cot. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a cot. You open up the trunk, you pull it out, and it's, it's just, just like this me- little metal bed. It's got a bed and a mattress. You can roll it all up together, fold it back into the trunk, and put it on your horse or have your, one of your men carry it for you, and off you go. It's a cute little thing, actually. It doesn't look very comfortable, but were you actually very comfortable when you're in the middle of a war? <laughs> so it did the job. Now, there's a lot of signs that are here as well. I know the Holiday Inn, McDonald's. Yeah. Do they have some other stuff like that? Yeah, they have McDonald's. They have the Holiday Inn. They have some Burma shade ones that used to stick outside of the road. And you would see it kind of go in line until you see the end. And it said Burma shade because it would have little funny jokes on it. And then, like, the end of it, you would see, oh, it's a Burma shade advertisement. Okay. They have Texaco. And this was all brought in, I want to say, in the 70s and the 80s to show the importance of the Americana in the 50s and the 60s, how we defined the road, you know, living on the road, so to speak, kind of like how we still today with living like fast food, eat quick and easy in hotels, more traveling, more exploring things, as opposed to just being on trains and never stopping until your final destination. This was showing that we're exploring more as Americans. We have more money and we are able to buy more consumer goods and see more and be able to stay at places that we weren't able to afford to stay at and have quick, easy food on the go. That McDonald's sign is luminous. It's very bright and it moves. It blinks on and off, on and off now and then, just like how we would have it was still outside. And it only still says over one million souls, not billions and billions souls. (laughs) Very cool. They're probably up to a trillion by this point. Ah, yeah. Well, we got to see Kitty Hawk on our last road trip before the the last one that we just Mm -hmm. did. And so we have a little bit of a connection there with the Wright Brothers and their bicycle shop is at the Greenfield Village. Is that correct? And their home. Yes. And their home as well. And their home. Wow. Their home is where they lived with their father and their sister. And their their bicycle shop is there, too. In fact, they had built a replica of the plane, their their plane, for a while there. It was in their shop, but I think they moved it into the museum when they built the the new airplane exhibit. Still very cool to go into the home and see how they lived with their their sister and their father, because neither of them married. And I, I don't think their sister married as well. And she lived with them until their father passed away and just taking care of them and running their home. And 
very it's a very simple home. It's a pretty house. Again, this is one of the, the things that Henry Ford brought. Some of these houses in the village, he, he helped save them from demolition. And I think this was one of those houses where it was about to be demoed. And he went, no, this is a piece of American history. This is coming to my campus and I'm going to save this and I'm going to preserve it for everybody to enjoy. And you can go into both the home and the bicycle and the bicycle shop. They restored the bicycle shop to how the brothers worked and knew it. And the back when I was working there was where they had the replica of the airplane. And then ironically, next to it, when I worked there, they had it set up as an undertaker, an undertaker's parlor. Now they, they took the undertaker's parlor out and put it as a candy store slash toy store. And my husband made a crack. He's like, oh, it's probably too morbid for all the kids to see when you walk by. I was like, yeah, but it was still kind of cool. I thought that was interesting. He was being realistic. He was making it more like a little town where you had a little bit of everything. You had Mrs. Cohen's down the street, which was a millinery shop. You had the doctor's office down the street. And then, hey, you got the undertaker. <laughs> you got to have one in every town, right? Exactly. They have presenters dressed up as the Wright brothers in, in period clothing. And, it's, and, I like, and I like watching it. And I did that, actually. I dressed up as period clothing for a while, too. So it's quite fun to do that and see the kids entertain and ask you. Are you hot under those clothes? <laughs> There's so many things in this museum. Is there anything else in regard to the exhibits that you wanted to share before we like start moving on into maybe some of the more creepy parts? You touched on a lot of the cool stuff, a lot of the fun stuff, and a lot of my favorite things, so I'm glad that I was able to share those things with you guys. Very cool. Why don't we start with you sharing what other people say is going on in regards to hauntings, and then you'll be the cherry on the cake there with what's happened to you. A lot of people I've heard, and this is coming from a lot of the security guards and the presenters. Now, there's a thing that they don't like to share the hauntings publicly. They'll kind of go, oh, no, that doesn't happen here. You talk to, especially you'll talk to the security guards at, who, who are there overnight. They'll tell you, uh, yeah, this does happen. I met a security guard who actually lasted there only a week working there overnight. Wow, that's pretty intense activity then if he's like, I'm out of here after a week. Yeah, she was like, I'm done. And this was a woman who was a retired corrections officer. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, because I saw her kind of turning her things and I said to her, where are you going? And she's like, uh, I can't work here anymore. I said, why? What's wrong? And she told me. And when she was doing her rounds, she kept hearing footsteps behind her. And I'm like, okay, well you know, nobody's there. It's the middle of the night. She's like, yeah, I know. Every time she did her rounds each night, they kept getting closer and closer to her. And then finally, she just felt something kind of just whoosh by her. And it was like cold air. And she's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm no longer working here. I can't handle it. I said, well, what do you think it was? And she said, I honestly think it was Henry Ford trying to scare me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. A lot of people, again, say the Kennedy car is another big hot spot. That was another one from a lot of the security guards that I've heard. That it, especially around the anniversary of the assassination, that's when a lot of people say he was more active. And they also hear a lot of footsteps, again, more footsteps. It's a lot of Henry Ford walking around is what I've heard. They can hear him walking down, up and down the halls, going up the stairs, and Lovett Hall, which is part of the museum. It's more where the staff goes to put their things and go have their lunches. There's also a ballroom in there. 
And that was where Henry Ford used to hold square dancing. The museum also hosts a lot of lock-ins for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And a lot of the people that I've worked with who did the overnight said they heard a lot of the music and dancing from the ballroom of Lovett and Lovett Hall from the dorm because the dorms are down the hall from it. And they could hear it from the dorms. And they would be like, yeah, no, there is no wedding tonight because the kids are here. So we don't know what's going on down there. And there was a pool in Lovett Hall as well, because like I said, there was a school there and that's where they would give swimming lessons. And they sometimes people would still hear the kids swimming and shouting in the pool area. I've never done a lock-in before, but I had a little girl come up to me the next morning. She said, I couldn't sleep last night. And I said, why? What's wrong? She said, there were too many people doing late night swimming in the, in the pool. And they was waking me up. And I went, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you guys were all asleep last night. Because when the next presenter comes in and takes over in the morning, and I took over in the morning, I'm like, you guys were all asleep when I came in. She's like, I couldn't sleep because they were all screaming and yelling and having fun. And I wanted to go out there and join them. I'm like, oh, I don't think there was anybody in the pool. Sorry, kiddo. <laughs> a lot of activity goes in the Lovett Hall, too. Just the normal banging noises and things. I A lot of things that I would dismiss as just settling noises to me. But a lot of people have taken it as residual noise, as residual energy. And, I, and I, they could be. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate if it is or isn't, but that's just what I've been told from a lot of people. In the village, Noah Webster's home is haunted. Mm. Um, there is a ballroom up in the top that's close up to, to visitors, and I've had friends who had worked in there. I, I've gone to visit them when they're closing up, and they're like, let's get the hell out of here. I'm like, why? why what's wrong? I'm here. I, after the last visitor left, I started hearing music and dancing upstairs. I gotta get out of here. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, where are you hearing the music? I'm like, well, I'm gonna hear it. I'm gonna go in and see what you're hearing. And like, no, 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 get out of here. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. I've heard that from every presenter who's closed up there every time. There's music going on. They hear Nora Webster walking around. They swear it's him. They hear lighter footsteps and they swear it's his daughter who passed away in the house very young. They swear that that place is the most haunted place in the village. A lot of people get about bad vibes and the slave quarters that are on the property, they were transported from Savannah. They're very sparse. They're very sad and somber. I, I don't like going in them. Mm-hmm. I've had people who say, I just get bad vibes in there. And I'm like, okay. And I, had, I had that feeling actually on Saturday when my husband was like, let's go in the slave quarter. I'm like going, nope, you could go in, nope. <laughs> And there is one that he doesn't like, and it's a sharecropper's house. It's circa 1930s, and he says he feels like there's just someone angry Hmm. in in that house. And I say, well, there probably is. I mean, it's that wasn't a very happy life, and no. So I I assume there might be somebody who's very angry living in that house and still there. Well, it could be Um, that they move the house to this location too. That sometimes disturb spirits. Yeah, and that's kind of why I said when what I said about the dirt being there because because you probably as you probably know that a lot of people believe that having the, the the original earth underneath it holds 
a lot of that energy, holds a lot of the residual energy, a lot of the spiritual energy. And I've had medium, I've heard mediums come in there and say, some of these people are very, very angry that their house, even though you have the dirt, it's, it woke up the spirits and they're, they're recognizing that they're not where it's supposed to be. There's a home that was from the 1600s, and a woman raised seven children in there, seven living children in this teeny tiny little house. That they, they said that that's one that holds a lot of energy in it. And there's another one that was built in the later 1600s that was from Massachusetts as well. And that one, they say that that holds a lot of energy in it. I have felt some energy in that one just because how old it is. Mm-hmm. But I really didn't feel like anything was haunting it. I think it might be more residual. Like they're just there. They're content. They're happy. This is where they had a lot of memories. The Eagle Tavern, which is actually still an operating uh, restaurant in the village. And that, I've heard, is very active. You get a lot of friendly ghosts in there, from what I've been told. They still like to party <laughs> um, have have some drinks. Or after everybody's closed up for the day, I've heard people, I've heard the security guards tell me, like, oh, yeah, we've walked by that. And there's still people having a good old time. But we've, we've, walked it, we've walked up to it, and there's nobody in there. And then noise stops, but then when we walk away, it starts right back up again. I'm like, well, okay, that, that's kind of where I would want to hang out if there's something haunting in there. <laughs> I want to hang out with some party people. And some people have said that they've heard music from the carousel afterwards as well, even though the, the museum or the village is closed up for the night, and they could still hear the tinkling of the carousel. See, that would um, creep me the heck out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would, too. And Menlo Park, Thomas Edison's laboratory, that is very active because that was Thomas Edison's domain. And I've heard people say that they could see him up in the upper part of the laboratory where he had his private, where he would work himself on his experiments, walking around. And I'm like, okay. Sarah Jordan's boarding house, which was his the woman that he would have his employees go to to board if they were single men. And they said that that's very active because a lot of his men felt very attached there. And Mrs. Jordan was very pride, house proud. So she's very attached to her home and is also the first house to be wired with electricity. So, yeah, so I think that she's very proud of that and that there was always a big emphasis. Mrs. Jordan was a very house proud woman to have her electricity wired in her for the first private residence. So I think she still kind of hangs around there and shows off to people, look, look what I can do with electricity. So, and <laughs> that electricity is still running in that house, actually, believe it or not. So that's what I know from other people. Again, not a lot of people like to share their stories because mm-hmm. they don't want to ruin the reputation of the museum. I think it adds more mystique to the museum, actually, and to the village. I think it adds a little bit more character because it holds so much history. It's going to attract some energy. It's going to attract these things. And why not? I mean, even that they do Halloween, they do uh, Halloween events, but they don't do any ghosty events or anything like that. They let the kids trick or treat around there and you can walk around and see how it's decorated for the fall season. I'm like thinking, we should let some people come in and do some ghost tours. You know, that'd be mm-hmm. kind of fun. It'd be a great but, idea for Halloween. Yeah, it would be. But I, I think they, they don't want to the tarnish the reputation, especially since the Ford family is still heavily involved on the board and within running the museum on a day-to-day basis. So I, I can understand that they don't want to sully their, their great-grandfather uh, name on that. It's, yeah, it's, some people don't look at it like we do that maybe that person is attached to stuff because they love it so much and so they that's how much it, 
commitment to them that they want to stick around with it. And, you know, we always say theaters seem to have this reputation for being haunted, but museums are the exact same way because you have so many items in there that could have attachments and are old. Right. That's what I've got from other people. <laughs> and now okay, we so, have her. Yeah, say, so that's what you have for other people. All right. Now we're ready for you. Yeah, for me. All right. My my more thing was the Kennedy card. And I'll say this. I have a kind of a family connection to JFK. My grandfather worked on JFK's campaign when he was running for president. And so I think this might have a connect, you know, like a connection for me just historically and knowing what it means to me because I, I do have a lot of pride in my grandfather working for that. In fact, my grandfather was pretty high up in that where he got to go to the birthday party at uh, Madison Square Garden where Marilyn Monroe came out in that little dress and sang happy birthday, Mr. President. So That is um, awesome. What a great piece of history to have in your family. Yes. For, and that's kind of why I think this happened to me. I was kind of cleaning things up after guests were gone. We were having a private event for the Fords, for Ford Motor Company that evening. And I was kind of picking things up and I was by the Kennedy car and I was cleaning. We have little, we used to have rubber stations where you can rub an image kind of like trace it and we had one of the Kennedy cars so and kids were leaving all their cran- all the crayons and the papers around so I was cleaning that up and I heard kind of a whistle and it was a whistle of an old Irish song that I haven't heard since my grandfather passed away when I was seven what is that and there he was sitting in the car sitting where he sat that day and I was like oh my guy. <laughs> I took off running down towards the, the the security desk. And the guy that was working the desk was a very good friend of mine at the time. And he looked at me and he's like, what happened to you? You look white. You look like you just saw a ghost. And I said, think I did. And he goes, oh, where were And he looked over and he's like, oh, you were coming by from the Kennedy car, weren't you, kid? And I went, yeah. And he goes, Tim told me he likes to show himself to people that he feels connected with or that he feels they're a good soul or something like that is what he said. And then then he joked and he said, and if he thinks the girl is cute. So (laughs) I'm like, okay, great. Thanks, Tim. I'd rather take that he feels more connected to me than than I'm just cute. (laughs) Let me ask you about this apparition. Was he solid? Could you see through him? I could see through him. He was he was almost like a see like a see through, but and he he was there and then he was gone. It was oh I'm sorry, my cat is. <laughs> and now I'm going. Voice. There's a ghost in the background. <laughs> no, it's it's my cat. He wants attention. So no, uh, he was he was see through, and like I said, I saw him and then he was gone, and I, that's when I took off running. I was like frozen for a minute and. It, and it was like what a lot of people say. It got cold. This was October. And we had the heat on in the building because it's October in Michigan. It's, it's not very warm outside. So we keep the heat on. I was like, why am I feeling like the air conditioning is blowing on me? And then, like I said, once once I felt him go, it felt like the heat was back on again. And I was like, what is that? that I just experienced what is this and that was the first ghost experience I've ever had and then I had another experience later on but this was kind of funny this this what I found was humorous was remember me mentioning that innovation station earlier yes that was designed by Caroline Kennedy's husband Edwin Schlossberg and I was joking one day because by the time I was working there, it was old. It was falling apart. It was just on its last legs. Every time we had one part of the station, it, it would just stick. 
and it wasn't too far from the Kennedy car, actually. Like, you could see the Kennedy car, like, right from the innovation station. So I'm standing at, so I'm, like, sticking something, like, I'm sticking a broom in to make this, one of those plastic balls get unstuck. And I'm joking, I'm like, Jack, your son-in-law built a piece of junk, and I'm, like, shoving it. And as soon as I said that, the ball came out. And the broom flew out of my hand and flew back. I'm like, oh, okay, you heard me. <laughs> Oops, I think you might have made him a little angry. <laughs> okay, you heard me, thanks. <laughs> and I walked away, I picked up the broom, and, and my, my co-worker's looking at me, he's like, what was that? I don't know, I'm not going to question it. it. It's no longer stuck, that's all I care about. <laughs> so that was, a, that was another fun experience. And then I had a young lady, I was giving a tour, and uh, we were... A, a lot of my, like, again, most of my experiences were around that car. And I was giving a tour around the, at that car. We stopped there and I was talking about it. And I heard a young lady, she was very beautiful, almost model-like, look at her male companion and say, stop pinching my butt. And I, oh, Sanders, sorry, he's wanting to just make a theatric <laughs> effect with it. <laughs> Um, he he was pinching her butt and it made her purr. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she got angry and she's like, stop pinching my butt. He's like, I'm not doing anything. She's like, that's the third time he did it since we were over here. And then she looked at me and I looked at her and I went, what do you... And I said, are you, are you experiencing something over here? She's like, yeah. And she, she's like, well, my boyfriend's denying that he's pinching my butt, but I don't believe him. I'm like, I looked at her boyfriend. And I was kind of like seeing where he was standing. He was standing kind of far away from her where he wasn't able to do so. And I looked at her and I'm like, I don't want to scare you, but um, that's a common occurrence around this car. And then she looked at the car and she went, wait, that's JFK's car, right? And I went, Yep. And she's like, oh my God. <laughs> I laughed at her and I said, it happens. He, he's still a flirt. And, and even even on the other side, he's still a flirt. I'm sorry. He flirts with, like I said, when he sees a pretty girl, he gets a little handsy. So I'm sorry. <laughs> and after that, I, I've learned to, when I've gone by, the ever since then, when I've gone, when I worked, was working, I've gone by the car to remember to say, hi, Jack. How are you, Jack? Because I've noticed if I said hello, Mr. President, he was still kind of goofing around a little bit. So I always said, hello, Jack. Hi, Jack. Good night, Jack. You know, those kinds of things. And I've noticed when I said those things, he he was a little bit more settled. Hmm. He didn't goof around so much. He was a little more behaved is what I said. Because one day, because after that that incident, I I looked over at the car and went, Jack, cut it out. So, (laughs) and I hadn't had any more incidences after that, so... And people still see him. Like I said, they see him more on the anniversary of his deaths. Some people have said they, they've seen him standing up, a full body, body apparition, solid, waving. Some I've he, also I, I, heard that he said to somebody there were two shooters. I have heard that story, too, but mm-hmm. I've not had that experience. He really doesn't, like, when I was working there, he really didn't say much to me. He was just more of a prankster. And I've also had experiences with Henry Ford walking around in the museum. He's kind of he kind of spooked me out. He's a very stern person. He's a very no nonsense kind of guy where you just were like, okay, just keep walking. Because I actually saw a kind of like a shadow figure of him walking by, and I was like, I thought it was him. It looked because it was very tall and very lanky, and Henry Ford was a very tall, lanky man, and he had his hands what looked like his hands behind his back, and I was like, okay, that's Henry Ford. I'm gonna go the other way and still keep walking. <laughs> now this shadow, did it seem like it was a solid mass or what did it look like to you? 
was almost great. Hmm. I mean, again, this was like during the day, and this was part of the, the area where not a lot of visitors go to. He was kind of like what I thought, like what I like to joke as doing his rounds, so to speak, because people have said that they've seen him do that. And it, it was like just kind of like gray, cloudy. Like it was almost like just a shape flowing, I, I want to say, but I, could, I, I, I couldn't really describe it any more than that just because it was like there. And then it was gone, you know, just kind of like, it was just moving slowly. And then it just kind of went poof. Well, Bridget, you are just a fountain of information when it comes to this. Thank you so much for suggesting this location and sharing about it. I don't think there's anybody better to talk to other than if we could get a hold of Henry Ford himself. Uh, <laughs> Diane, you can, you can stop that one right now. <laughs> well, apparently we won't be talking to him with the Ouija board tonight. Uh, no, I wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> Thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate you ladies having me on tonight. I, I had a lot of fun doing this. This was I was so excited to do this. So thank you for taking the opportunity. If you guys come up to Michigan, please let me know, and I'll take you on a tour of the museum. Very cool. I, I definitely want to see this, and I know we're going to be in Michigan because there's so much stuff up there. We had never thought we'd ever go to Ohio or Michigan, and now that we're into all the creepy stuff, we're like, oh, yeah, we got to go to those places. It will be in the summer, however. Yes. We oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. I should. If you guys come up, I'll have to take you to uh, Fort Wayne. That's another uh, spooky spot to go to as well. So Very cool. All right. Well, you have a great evening, and uh, we hope to talk to you in the future. Thank you. Good night, ladies. Good night. Right, good night. There seems to be many strange things of a supernatural variety taking place at the museum. Is the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a very cool place to visit. Eventually, we'll make our way up there to the Mitten State, and I know we're going to hit that location for sure. Yes, every time we talk to people from Michigan, it moves a little bit further up our list because I definitely have about three locations I want to go to. If everything goes according to plan, we will have a show uploaded to drop while we are gone, and that will be featuring Fort Henry, which was suggested to us by our listener, Sarah Norton, and she joins us to share some experiences that she's had there. I am really looking forward to the Haunted America Conference 2017. Denise, we leave in a week. Yes, I'm super excited. It's going to be a great time to see friends that we met last year and um, new friends that are coming this year. They're going to be meeting up. We're going to be having the largest History Goes Bump meetup to date on Friday before the conference kicks off. And that will be at the most haunted location in St. Louis, the Limp Mansion. We got another video up for those of you who are executive producers at the $2 and above level. And this one features the Old City Cemetery in Tallahassee, Florida, where we search for the witch's grave. And it was a quaint little cemetery. Well, not that little, but it was really neat. And speaking of cemeteries, of course, our last episode covered several haunted cemeteries. And Kathy, who has been to the Tolomato Cemetery, shared a bunch of pictures with me. And she said she was so inspired about us talking about Charleston with Mike that she has decided that that's going to have to be their next anniversary trip for her and Gavin. She says it's got pirates, beautiful homes, history and ghosts. So I said, yes, and dolphins on top of it. Yes, there are dolphins right there. We have some reviews from iTunes to share. The first one is from Monet W. Yay, one of my faves, five stars. Hello, beautiful ladies. I was listening to Twisted Philly and Dina mentioned to check y'all out. And so I'm glad I did. 
I've been binge listening from the beginning since yesterday, and I'm already on episode 11. Thank you both for all that you give and research for the podcast. Can't wait to catch up to the current episodes, but I feel it will take a long while. Well, don't go too fast because then the binge will be over and then you'll be all upset, Monet. Thank you for that review. We also heard from Pam Hammer. Such a great show. Five stars. Every episode is part travelogue, part ghost story. You get to hear the creepiest stories behind some of the most haunted locations in the world. It helps that your hosts sound like two of the nicest and most knowledgeable people ever. Great show. Well, thanks, Pam. And I don't know about the most knowledgeable people, but we are pretty nice, I like to say. Well, maybe it's that, you know, if we're the older, like with age comes wisdom. I don't know. And then Pittman, 1382, great show, five stars. This show is so much fun and informative. You are sure to learn something every episode while still being entertained. It is also hosted by two of the nicest people. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, we must be nice, Denise, huh? They haven't got really good fakers. (laughs) I was going to say they haven't gotten on your bad side. And Pittman, I hope that this maybe might be Koi or Felicia. We'll be seeing you guys shortly, too. Yes. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.